But Hesiod actually is the one who sort of articulates more fully um, the centrality of justice and kind of gives you a laundry list of what actions are just and what actions are unjust and says uh, that justice and law are gifts of Zeus to human beings. They're what separate us from the animals. So this is where you start to get this idea that's also in Protagoras of uh, justice as being part of our natural human endowment and having a kind of normative authority that comes from being part of human nature. This episode is brought to you by Kia's first three-row all-electric SUV, the Kia EV9, with available all-wheel drive and seating for up to seven adults, with zero to 60 speed that thrills you one minute and available lounge seats that unwind you the next. Visit kia.com slash EV9 to learn more. Ask your Kia dealer for availability. No system, no matter how advanced, can compensate for all driver error and or driving conditions. Always drive safely. Hello, my geeselings. This is Mother Goose, Robinson Earhart, here with the introduction to Robinson's podcast, number 79. And this episode is with Rachel Barney, who's professor of classics and professor of philosophy at the University of Toronto. And this classics philosophy uh, dichotomy or plurality or multiplicity of, of degrees and roles really comes out because we also talk not about philosophy, but we also get a bit into Homer and, and Hesiod, which is a nice change of pace. So Rachel has worked widely across ancient philosophy, but her main focus is on Plato. And while her, her main focus is on Plato, I'll have to dig into that on another episode. In this episode, we discuss the sophists. And that means beginning with just who they were and why they have so been so maligned in contemporary discourse. Because even if you're not an ancient philosopher, you know the word sophistry, which is pretty much it just tantamount to specious reasoning, and it, and it comes from this ancient group of philosophers. And I won't say too much more about who they are, because we, that's, I mean, all we talk about, really. Uh, but we, we, we talk about who they were, uh, some of their most important thinkers, like Gorgias and Protagoras. We talk about their philosophical practices, how Plato and Aristotle displaced those practices, some of the things they wrote about. So religion, virtue, non-being. Uh, there's a really great article on the Stanford Encyclopedia of Philosophy, which is a terrific resource for all things philosophy on the sophists. And the last thing, because we, we really start from the beginning, I don't think there's too much technical stuff you need to know. One thing perhaps worth noting is we refer or Rachel Rachel refers to something called the contrapositive which is I don't know if you like random vocabulary and stuff and you're not a philosopher maybe it will be interesting but it's just a bit of logical terminology so if you have a statement of the form if pins jumps on my lap then there's a cat on my lap taking the contrapositive means taking the consequence of the second clause of that stage of that statement and of that implication and and the first clause and uh, sort of switching where they go in the sentence and then negating them so if there is no cat in my lap then pins did not jump 
in my lap. And I think that comes out with Gorgias because we talk about the different ways in which he argued. Now, you should also check out Rachel's last book, Plato and the Divided Self. And you should check out her website. And I also have to mention, because I'm being much more diligent about these calls to action, that you should like and subscribe and all of those good things and uh, follow me on Twitter, uh, on Instagram, on uh, just about anywhere you can follow me, except for real life, uh, you should follow me. And without any further ado, I hope you enjoy this conversation as much as I enjoyed having it with Rachel. I've had a few ancient scholars on the podcast so far, uh, Peter Adamson, uh, Christopher Babanich, and Sophia Grace Chappelle. And I'm always curious about how ancient philosophers or classicists became interested in the subject, since as far as I'm concerned, they're the true nerds, not just of philosophy, but of academia, and in a good way. And so was that already your primary interest before you even started at Toronto? Or did you somehow get sucked into the ancient vortex? Well, um, a bit of both. I went to a kind of strange high school that actually had a pretty extensive philosophy program. And our teacher took an interesting angle, which was we read uh, Bertrand Russell's History of Western Philosophy, oh, and, wow. uh, which is kind of a great book in its way. I mean, it's very sort of superficial and opinionated, but it's a um, pretty excellent introduction for, for high school students. And one curious thing about that book is he actually goes through the pre-Socratics in very great detail and gives them each a chapter. Um, so you start off with this kind of panorama of um, very early Greek philosophy, and then he's very opinionated about Plato and so on. Um, so coming with that background, I was already intrigued. I think also, I mean, I, I was one of these kids who really wanted to be an archaeologist. I was just fascinated by the ancient world. And I could easily have um, gone into something else to do with the ancient world, I think, um, because I, I still am fascinated. I discovered I didn't want to be an actual archaeologist early on, but uh, there's still a, a bit of that in what I do, and I enjoy it. Hmm. Now... One of your main interests today is the Sophists. And do they count as pre-Socratics? Because I know they're around the 5th century BCE. But I know that Socrates is also maybe sometimes classified as a Sophist. Yeah, so that is a tricky and controversial question. When people say, I mean, I think, the, even though I use it myself all the time, the term pre-Socratic is not great because on anyone's account, it includes people like Democritus who are basically alive at the same time as Socrates. So you always have to kind of put an asterisk beside it and say pre-Socratics doesn't actually mean pre-Socratic. Whether the sophists count is a further tricky question. If you look at most scholarly books on the pre-Socratics, probably most of them don't include the sophists. And that's kind of an, an ideological decision and it's a decision you can trace back to Aristotle, actually, because he kind of fixes the canon 
of who's a pre-Socratic philosopher. He doesn't use that phrase. He calls them the, the fusikoi, or he just he doesn't um, necessarily have a single term for all of them. But in in several of his works, he starts out by reviewing the thought of his predecessors, and especially in Book One of the Metaphysics, he gives this kind of historical account of the development of thinking about being, and uh, that's the main source that the later canon of the pre-Socratics comes from. And so you get um, kind of interesting ideological decisions in 19th century scholarship. Um, so for instance, we have plenty of fifth century medical texts, but they don't really get counted as the pre-Socratics. I think, I think it would have cost too much for the German publishers of these scholarly tomes <laughs> to jam all the medical texts into the volumes of the pre-Socratics, so they don't do it. Um, some of them do include the sophists. Um, so the great um, deals uh, volume fragments of the pre-Socratics, that does include the sophists at the end, and some scholars more recently have followed that. Uh, but a lot of books um, will just exclude them. And that's, uh, yeah, partly, partly for convenience, but also to do with a kind of, as I say, ideological belief that they don't really belong and this goes back to um, Hegel. Uh, well, it goes back to Aristophanes, if you really trace it back. This idea mm -hmm. that the sophists are just, uh, they're either kind of frivolous um, fallacy mongers of no intellectual interest, or the sort of Hegelian view, they're kind of uh, in opposition to what becomes philosophy. They're sort of anti-philosophers. Anti and either way, you've got an argument for not including them in the book. But I'm I'm very much on the other team. I think they're right, fascinating right. philosophers, and it's time we took them much more seriously. Yeah. So I I actually would like to get back to those uh, fifth century medical texts that you mentioned a moment ago uh, mm -hmm. later on. But first, and please don't hesitate to correct me if my Greek pronunciation is <laughs> totally off. It's been a while since I took any Greek, but. Even though, so, so Sophism has its roots in, I mean, etymologically in Sophia and Sophos, mm -hmm. uh, wisdom and wise man. But in contemporary English, the word sophist, it doesn't just have negative connotations. It's, I mean, it's in the, the very definition that Sophism is maybe just something like, a more elevated way of saying specious reasoning or yeah. like deceitful reasoning almost. And you, you've already, I guess, touched on this a bit uh, with your reference to Hegel and Aristophanes, but maybe without getting into specifics since we'll come to that, but you think super highly of the sophists. So how, how did they end up getting, I mean, this tremendously negative, treatment mm -hmm. over the past 2,500 years that has left them so maligned, yet you feel quite differently about them. Yeah. And partly that sort of sympathy for the underdog. And also okay. as, a, as a scholar, I want to find, um, uh, I want to go where the work, where the work is to be done. Um, so the fact that they've been so neglected is, is exciting to me, but I do think that, um, they are special in the history of philosophy in ways which make it hard for them to be assimilated 
uh, and used and thought about uh, in a serious way. And that's for all sorts of reasons. Um, I should say, by the way, that, that negative stereotype, that goes back completely to the fifth century itself. So the stereotype oh. you just gave, uh, that's Aristophanes' stereotype in the clouds of, of these guys. And of course, he pins it on Socrates. His example, his character who represents the sophistic movement is Socrates. In or, clouds? In the clouds, yeah. So mm -hmm. he at least, and he's the most famous critic of the sophists before Plato, who we can name, but um, but they were sort of huge celebrities in a big kind of cultural moment. So they were, so the I think the year in which uh, Aristophanes' uh, clouds came out, there was another play that was all about satirizing sophists too. It was this kind of um, cultural uh, boom, this moment in which everyone's attention was on these guys, and it was very critical attention um, from the gentlemen of Athens. They they were right from the start seen as some, doing something quite dangerous. Um, but why do we? What still... were they seen as doing dangerous? Well, um, teaching for money, oh. and specifically teaching a weird kind of combination of things, as it seems to us and as it also seemed at the time. Um, the sort of techniques that they taught were indeed techniques of argument um, yeah. and ones which by any later standards are um, fallacy dependent, you might say. Um, they don't pass muster with Aristotle or with us. Uh, and at the time, people would be conscious that oh, there's something very, um, something sneaky happened in that argument. Um, but there's a, well, two, two complications. First of all, they also seem to have presented themselves as teachers of, of excellence or virtue, arete. So Plato's dialogue Protagoras, where he engages most seriously, I think, with sophistic ideas and with the greatest of all the sophists, Protagoras, um, their Protagoras introduces himself as a teacher of virtue. And he says, I will make you better every day. And he says, he will do that by teaching you good judgment, eubulia. And this will make you successful both in private life and in uh, politics. It will make you the most um, able, most powerful person in your city, in words and uh, action both, he says. So one weird thing about them is that there seems to be this disconnect between, you know, um, teaching argumentative tricks and the aspirations um, that they avowed. Because one seems disingenuous? Uh, yeah, and it seems kind of small scale, right? It doesn't, how could that be what, what excellence consists in? Uh, mm -hmm. How could that be, you know, the key to, to a happy and successful human life? Um, so I guess part of what I want to do is kind of restore um, the richness of the picture and all the all the things they did uh, kind of in between that helped to, to bind together those two ways of looking at the sophists. Okay. Um, and I think it, it can be done. And one interesting aspect of it is um, what they did was, if you like, formally or practically different from what philosophers since have done. Um, they were, yeah. they were live performers. Um, they, uh, were itinerant teachers, most of them. And in the Protagoras, you get this picture of uh, excitement because Protagoras has come to town and a bunch of the other sophists oh, yeah. uh, with him. It's almost as if there's some kind of um, traveling, it's like a music festival now where Protagoras would be the headliner. But Prodicus is there and Hippias and, you know, all the, um, all the opening acts. 
And um, the, I think something that people don't appreciate when they talk about sophists and argument and is it fallacious, blah, 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 is um, their activities are almost all uh, agonistic, that's to say competitive in a way that has deep roots in, in Greek tradition. And they are uh, live, they're oral. And so sophistic arguments are um, generally games for two players. And there's a questioner and a respondent. It sounds like the Stoics to me. Well, it, it should sound most like Socrates, because mm. what Socrates does when he goes around refuting people, the so-called Socratic Alenchus, that's a sophistic argument form. He's formally doing exactly what the sophists do. And there's the same idea that what you're doing is kind of testing the other person. And what's philosophically interesting emerges from that kind of competitive, but also more deeply collaborative form of, of testing. So they're, yeah, they're constantly testing the limits of what you can get away with in terms of inference. Um, but I think it's, it's a terrible mistake to uh, retroactively apply the standards of Aristotle and the standards that we apply to written uh, philosophical treatises, um, because really they're they're trying to do philosophy um, in a kind of gamified way that's uh, actually very unfamiliar to us. It's funny uh, you mentioned the live performances. Because I just saw like a, a a tweet I think yesterday that Brian Green, a a physicist or a string theorist at Columbia, who's announcing like a tour where he's going through Australia giving these live performances, and it, it's funny that we're living in in or maybe entering in into an era with uh, academic sort of superstars that are giving uh, performances like this and people can be very excited when Brian Greene's coming to visit Australia. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I think we're in various weird ways. We're in a better position to appreciate the sophists now than people have been for a couple of thousand years, actually. Um, I mean, they would have loved Twitter. Uh, they would have been <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> totally, uh, totally adept at um, the kind of contemporary, uh, culture of, of debate, I think. Um, mm. And they also, they sort of suffered for um, centuries because it's it's not clear how much theory they had. Um, and the texts we have, it's very difficult to read some of them as theory. So one of the few complete texts we have is um, Gorgias uh, on not being. And yeah. so this is a text where he proves that nothing exists. Yeah. Uh, that if it did exist, we um, couldn't know it or communicate it. So what, what are we supposed to make of that, right? Um, mm -hmm. It's a kind of show-off argumentative performance. It's probably a, a satire and a critique of Parmenides. Um, but uh, you can imagine what 19th century scholars tried to, you know, came up with right. trying to make sense of that. It's very hard to uh, classify these guys as... Um, having a school or a system or representing uh, different kinds of theoretical positions. Uh, the reason that I said that the sort of competitive element reminded me of the Stoics was I was just thinking of Chrysippus and the the games they would sort of play with 
what we think of now as vagueness, but you'd say like, yeah. oh, does one grain of sand make a heap? Does two? And then eventually you just stop answering because mm-hmm. you don't want to be seen as uh, precipitous. Yeah. Yeah. But, so that's, okay, so, that's an inheritance. Oh. That's, that's the kind of, um, that's exactly the kind of argument they did question and answer refutation mm-hmm. in which um, the respondent really has a, uh, a tough time deciding where to draw the line and stop mm-hmm. uh, answering the way he's being requested to. But if he doesn't stop, he's going to get going to get refuted, brought into a contradiction. So I do want to keep talking about Gorgias. I have some questions there. But uh, so we mentioned the argumentative techniques, the live performance, the uh, the competitive element that we were just discussing. You you've written that the sophist philosophical practices were quite different from the later standards and we we just talked about the the prior standards their standards but what was the later standard what did what was uh what displaced what the sophists were doing well plato and aristotle and what's interesting is that um plato uh takes a huge amount from the sophists in, in some ways he's kind of the, the completion of the sophistic movement, but at least superficially, he's quite hostile to it. Uh, he has a um, very hostile dialogue called the sophist. Um, some of his portraits of individual sophists are not so hostile, but if you try to uh, simplify his position and um, systematize it, then you do end up with a, a very hostile take. And mm-hmm. Aristotle uh, is obsessed with sort of systematizing rules for valid inference, systematizing what a, a proper demonstration looks like. And he's got a whole work called the Sophistical Refutations that's designed to um, tell you how to spot sophistic fallacies. Um, the rules that he develops um, are in some ways, maybe already dimly operative in the fifth century, but not not properly articulated. But there are all kinds of gray zones in the fifth century. So one question I'm interested in, I'm trying to write a book about Protagoras. So I'm trying to figure out what he in particular uh, contributed to all this. And he said to have um, invented uh, the art of arguing on both sides of the question. So it looks as though it's something we need more of today. Well, he he's your man then, um, yeah. and he that presumably was his specialty as um, a live performer. And interestingly, we know that later skeptics did this. The sophists had a big influence on later skepticism, I think. Um, so he would he would be able to prove first that P and then that not P for any thesis you wanted to hear him discuss, presumably. Hmm. Um, but what counted as P and not P is not so clear in the fifth century. So I think um, the sort of propositions he'd be dealing with would be showing first that um, uh, that all things are one and then that all things are many, or that justice is a good thing and then justice is a bad thing. Um, so the distinction between um, what you might call opposite propositions or, or propositions with contrary predicates and actual contradictions, that does not seem to have been um, something that was sort of fully on on the scene before Aristotle. And that makes a huge difference to, you know, what you can prove and um, 
what kinds of um, philosophical debates are going to be open. Now, most of what we've discussed thus far has related, I think, well, with regard to this office, has related to their oral traditions. So the competitiveness, the live performances, the rhetorical techniques that they used. But apparently, they also had some very distinctive literary practices, and which were, again, I mean, displaced, presumably, by Aristotle and Plato. Were they poets or what sort of literary practices did they have to be displaced? Well, hard to say because they were definitely very varied. They weren't. Right. And there were a few extant texts. There are a few. Exactly. Texts yeah. That's, I was building up to the bad news there that, yeah, oh. <laughs> we, we have almost none of it. Um, and uh, when people talk about the sophistic movement and sophistic ideas, they'll often, you know, throw in bits of, Thucydides or, or extracts from plays and so on, because um, the the boundaries are, are very unclear. Uh, and if you count as a sophist, everyone who is sort of thinking along those lines and working in that milieu, then you are going to include some people who wrote plays and poems and all kinds of stuff. Um, the, the hallmark was probably versatility. Um, several of them seem to have prized themselves on being able to, you know, do long discourses, do short question and answer, um, talk about every possible different subject. Uh, and that probably included all kinds of different literary genre too. Um, and certainly included things like, um, Gorgias Helen say, which is a kind of a, a parody of an encomium, which, again, is arguing for this incredibly startling conclusion, namely um, Helen of Troy didn't do anything uh, blameworthy, or she was not to blame for going off to Troy with Paris and starting the Trojan mm -hmm. War. Uh, so they, they, they were definitely open to humor, I think, in, I mean, Gorgias, there's no reason to think that um, his texts are only attempting to be funny, but they're, they're definitely funny. Um, and that's a bit, disturbing for later philosophers. Hmm. Well, okay. So I know I've been dancing around some of the specific um, sophists, but I promise that we'll get to talk more about Protagoras and, and Gorgias. But um, one last stage setting question that I have is I found this, I found this very interesting, a, a comment you made that not, not in our conversation, but in writing, but that, a lot of the fifth century philosophy that surrounded the sophists shouldn't really be categorized as philosophy, but should be categorized as proto-philosophy. And what I found this so interesting is that surely philosophy just didn't come into being one day, yet we treat all ancient philosophy, we just categorize it as ancient philosophy. We don't have, as far as I'm aware, uh, we don't have proto-philosophy classes. So it had, I'd never really thought about proto-philosophy as a thing before. So why do, you, why do you draw this distinction and what distinguishes proto-philosophy to you from philosophy? Well, I guess what I'm thinking is that um, philosophy, as we know and love it, as a continuous tradition in Western Europe and the places influenced by it, um, that's kind of unthinkable without Plato and Aristotle. 
they are, um, I think you have to be a little bit uh, essentialist or um, maybe in a way I'm being the opposite of that. Uh, it would be a completely different um, history, a completely different enterprise if it weren't for specific decisions that they made. And I've already mentioned um, probably the most important of those, which is Aristotle's decision to construct his own kind of genealogy of himself, you know, the, the history of philosophy leading to me uh, in book one of the metaphysics and who he includes and who he doesn't include is um, really pretty decisive for the rest of the tradition, but things could have gone in very different ways. Um, if, if Plato's great successor had been another dialogue writer, of course, Aristotle was a dialogue writer, but um, those works were, well, they're all lost pretty much. And it seemed yeah. as though they were more popular, whereas he, he kind of set the form of the scientific treatises, um, mm -hmm. the main philosophical genre. But if, you know, there are possible histories of philosophy that could have been completely different. Um, and so everything before Plato and Aristotle, uh, it's kind of contingent whether or not it later gets counted as philosophy. Um, and the pre-Socratics uh, sort of luck out. They um, get uh, included in the genealogy and by and large, the sophists don't. But it could have gone in quite different ways because those pre-Socratics, most of them are doing what would later be called um, natural science. And you could imagine an alternate universe in which um, science and philosophy are more divided from each other than they were in the Western tradition. Um, and in which uh, people like Thales and Anaximander sort of get segregated off. And it's people like Protagoras and Gorgias who are seen as the really important philosophers. And then, okay, finally moving on to <laughs> some more specifics. But so who were the main so sophists? We've, we've mentioned um, Gorgias, we've mentioned um, Protagoras. And if we don't have many extant texts from them, is most of what we know about them coming from Aristotle and Plato and then perhaps commentaries from texts that were lost um, over the past 2,500 years? Yeah, all of that. It's okay. a uh, very tricky situation. This is why my book isn't finished, is uh, trying to sort out um, how to how to construct our evidence for Protagoras. The um, most that's interesting. I mean, just uh, I'm sorry for cutting yeah. you off, but it's it's interesting that you're. I mean, you're part like archaeologist in a way, in a way that most contemporary analytic philosophers aren't, which yeah. just adds a very interesting dimension to the sort of work that an ancient philosopher is doing. Yeah, and it's an um, explorer in a way. It it is something I find a lot of fun. Uh, mm -hmm. it's, yeah, the, the book is full of archaeology, somewhat, somewhat hackneyed archaeology metaphors. It's very hard to resist the, the jigsaw puzzle and the broken pot and the, uh, the mysterious, yeah, yeah, yeah. uh, uh, site with confusing different levels and so on. Um, I mean, it is a very speculative book because all the kind of, all the easy archaeology has been done now in my field, I would say. Um, there's no, there's no low hanging fruit in ancient philosophy anymore. Um, so I'm, I'm kind of testing the limits of what can be reconstructed. And one thing I'm doing is 
um, bringing in a lot of uh, anonymous texts. So we have a few important texts that are pretty clearly from the Sophistic era and in the Sophistic spirit, but they've come down to us um, often in a somewhat fragmentary state and with no name attached. And something I find interesting, one of, one of the sort of hunches behind the book is um, those texts have been the most neglected of all. I think there's something in human nature um, which uh, makes us more interested in things with names attached. Um, and if you if you want to say something really new um, in the history of philosophy, find an, find yourself an anonymous text uh, because that will be the least appreciated, least discussed um, text you can find. So I take a few of those and I say, look, these are um, these are either by Protagoras or by some follower. They're as, as close as makes no difference. Let's discuss them seriously and and factor them in to what we know about him. And that hasn't really been done. Uh, before. So there's a, a fascinating one called the Anonymous Iambliki, who, and this will be an example of uh, the kind of um, situation you were, you were mentioning. Uh, this is a text that appears in the form of long paraphrases in a much later uh, Platonist text by Iamblichus, who's a, a late Platonist. Um, and he's got this work called the Protrepticus, which is all about how great philosophy is. And um, 90, 99% of it is um, riffs from Plato and Aristotle and fake Pythagorean texts. And then there's this weird chapter that's clearly a chunk of something from the fifth century. And we don't hmm. really know why he thought it was appropriate to excerpt this. There's no name attached to it. Um, Nobody really knows what's going on with this text, um, but it's a fascinating, um, in part at least, it's a fascinating defense of justice, a bit like Plato and the Republic. I think it very much influenced Plato and the Republic, um, but it hasn't really been uh, discussed uh, seriously in the way it deserves. Hmm. Okay. Now, gorgeous, going on to gorgeous, and on not being, because I think that was the the first of the texts from, I mean, you mentioned uh, the clouds by Aristophanes, but that's not a sophist text, but I think this was the first sophist text that you mentioned. And actually I had really wanted to talk about this one because uh, I had Graham priest on a few months ago and uh -huh. we talked for three hours about the <laughs> metaphysics of nothingness. Yeah. So this yeah. is probably around the first time that people were discussing this in, uh, at, I mean, fifth century BC, we don't have, that much yeah. uh, from earlier than that. But there there were a really a couple interesting words that stuck out at me, stuck out to me uh, regarding Gorgias's on not being one is that I, I really like etymology. And I saw that you wrote that the actual ancient Greek word rhetorike was an invention of Plato's just to describe Gorgias. So he was, I take it, a very skilled rhetorician. Yeah, I, I should say that's that's not totally uncontroversial. That's the um, okay. theory of a scholar called Ed Schiappa, who I think is right. I think he's kind of um, given good arguments to show that, but I'm just kind of taking that from him. It's not something we know for sure. But yeah, it does seem that Gorgias, and this is another complication talking about the sophists, is um, he comes down through the history with this slightly different label of uh, rhetorikos, 
Um, so expert in public speaking, is that the same thing as being a sophistes? Yeah, I was over those ask two different that. job descriptions. Yeah, that's a really tricky question. Um, I have a student right now who's gearing up to basically write a thesis on that. Um, um, just so, to clarify, though, yeah. is the idea that being a rhetorikos could be a pejorative term the way that being a sophistes is pejorative? It's it's less pejorative, I think. Um, but the question is more, it's, it's clear what a rhetorikos is. Um, a rhetorikos is someone who can teach you to be a rhetor, that's to say a, a public speaker in basically political contexts. So uh, the two great arenas at Athens are the um, assembly where the political decisions are made and the law courts, um, because important politicians spend most of their time suing each other uh, in, in ancient Athens yeah. and prosecuting each other. Um, so you've got, to, you've got to be good as a public speaker. But, okay, uh, is that what a sophist teaches or do they do something else? Um, I think the answer is both. A sophist is someone who could teach you to do that, but um, will also teach you how to do private arguments, how to do the, the Socratic style question and answer refutation thing, um, dialectic or aristic, it's sometimes called. And who like Protagoras will also claim to actually um, make you a better person, teach you, teach you arete. And Gorgias seems not to have ever claimed to be able to do that. Um, he just would teach you to be a clever speaker. So the way I can't help thinking of it is of rhetoric as kind of a, a more vocational training and the sophist as our offering you something more like a liberal arts education. So think of, think of the, the, the rhetoric teacher as like a pre-law program um, for people who want to become successful as fast as possible, um, cut to the chase, uh, only learn the practical stuff. And the sophist is saying, no, no, to really be a good public speaker, you also have to learn this art of argument and you also have to um, discuss high intellectual matters. And we're going to We'll give you that training that will make you a successful public speaker, but we're going to wrap it up in a lot more um, intellectually ambitious stuff. Hmm. And then the other term that I found really neat because I've never heard of it was that on not being, along with the encomium of Helen, which you mentioned earlier, was an epideixis mm -hmm. or an epideixis. I don't know which what the right way of pronouncing it is. Yeah. Now, what what is that? Well, can you pronounce it. it better than I did? <laughs> don't don't worry about Greek pronunciation. We don't even attempt to get it right. Actually, okay. um, an is a a showpiece, a display piece. So again, think of um, itinerant um, intellectuals going around giving doing their doing their act, um, and they might do it at the Olympic Games, say. Um, set out their stalls uh, in the outskirts and give a performance. And the point would be to um, impress people, make money, but above all, to attract students. Um, so people would hear Gorgias do his act and be incredibly impressed and um, sign up, pay money to follow him around uh, for a while and learn what he had to teach. So it's a, yeah, it's a display piece and what you're displaying is uh, the wisdom that you have to sell, um, whether it's uh, skill in, in speaking or 
argumentation or um, whatever whatever exactly your your brand is as a sophist. So in the case of Gorgias, um, the on not being and the Helen are both, in a sense, um, sort of formally beautiful arguments. There you can you can absolutely um, map uh, the argument and, and formalize it. Uh, very lucid structures. Um, some of the sub-arguments are, are pretty devious and, and can be spotted as such. But in the meantime, all kinds of fascinating philosophical arguments are... By devious, you mean yeah. fallacious? Um, certainly by Aristotle's standards and ours, yeah. And again, okay. there's this question mark about, well, in the fifth century, how did it register? Mm-hmm. Um, and you might think... Uh, um, you might think that some of the fallacies in the on not being especially are uh, related to fallacies in Parmenides. Um, and, you know, people are pretty respectful when Parmenides <laughs> um, makes some of these assumptions, which um, everyone accepts as if he and Gorgias does it. But yeah, so an epidaxis is, um, is your display piece. It's your, um, it's where you demonstrate what you can do. Yeah, so I think that's really important that it's aimed at students, prospective students, and it's a demonstration of what you can do. And I wonder if this goes back to the distinction you're you were drawing between philosophy and proto-philosophy. Because philosophy is, I mean, etymologically, it comes from the love of wisdom and knowledge. But in the case of gorgeous of these epidaxis what it sounds like to me is that his goal isn't exclusively uh, to obtain or demonstrate knowledge it's to demonstrate a skill to get students mm-hmm. and this disparity between what he's doing and a love a genuine love of knowledge might make his activity less worthy of being deemed uh, philosophy when philosophy is just the love of wisdom. Yeah. I mean, there's a, there's a gray zone there and a slippery slope. So Aristotle wrote a work called the Protrepticus, um, which uh, was designed to convince you that, um, you know, to lead a good life, you have to take up the study of philosophy. Um, So he's, he's touting for students too. Uh, and some of Plato's Socratic dialogues, um, which are particularly ingenious and attractive and leave all kinds of philosophical questions dangling. It's natural to read those as, as protreptic too, as um, kind of display-like and, and again, touting for students. Um, it's not clear to me that there's any uh, shame in that. And certainly as a... got to feed yourself. Uh, yeah, exactly. And as an academic myself who enjoys getting a paycheck, I'm not going to go, oh, tut, tut. They cannot be animated by the desire for wisdom. Um, but it did strike a nerve at the time. And I think especially the kind of thing um, Protagoras did uh, going around saying, I can, I can teach you excellence. I can, um, I can make you a, a success. Um, in politics and by the standards of your community, because that uh, traditionally, and people will sort of say this in in so many words in um, Plato's dialogues and other anti-sophistic texts, 
that's what your friends are supposed to do. That's what your older relatives are supposed to do. Um, if you're a young Athenian gentleman, um, the traditional theory is, well, you're, you're going to be kind of um, magically made better by uh, association with the people that you naturally associate with, your, your elite peers, and maybe especially your, your older lover who, who takes you on and um, kind of educates you uh, in, in adult ways. Um, and if you are a sort of conservative aristocrat, uh, it's important that that kind of um, closed circle of enculturation and um, non-profit education, you know, education from friends and associates and relatives with no money taking hands, that's a way of excluding the nouveau riche, right? That's a way of um, excluding people from lower backgrounds who don't have those connections. And so there's something very democratizing about what the sophists do, because they'll teach anyone who has the money. And something very vulgar about it, if you're coming from that kind of aristocratic background, because you're not supposed to charge money for that, uh, and you're not supposed to pay it. Um, so they're monetizing what traditionally hasn't been monetized, and that has this alarmingly democratic kind of subversive effect, and it makes people mad. And so we've talked a lot about sort of what's going on around on not being, but we haven't really talked about what the argument itself is. And I understand that there, you mentioned there are all these sort of devious uh, sub arguments. Maybe we don't need to get into the devious sub arguments, but what is the general argument in on not being? And was its purpose to like, to really show something or prove something that uh, Gorgias believed? Or was it more to just demonstrate a skill? Well, that is a very tricky question. And there's also a third option, which is um, that it's meant to show something critical. So not, you know, I think it's very unlikely that Gorgias actually believed that nothing exists. But, so that was the what the that's the conclusion of the argument. Well, nothing exists. That's not the only conclusion because there's three parts to it, and the first part is nothing exists. Second part is uh, even if nothing exists, we couldn't know it or think it. Even third part is um, even if it exists and we could think it, we couldn't communicate it. And you might think, ah, that's a very interesting structure. It is. And it is. interesting in many ways. And one way in which it's interesting is you might think, well, really, it's only that third conclusion that matters. And he's actually some kind of skeptic. Um, yeah, because that is, after all, mind. kind of the fallback conclusion, right, of the, of the whole thing. It's also interesting because that's a very useful structure in legal reasoning, right? Like you don't get that structure in a lot of philosophy i don't think later on um, Wait, could you elaborate on that a bit why the oh, connection to legal reasoning well because you say um my client had no motive for killing the victim but even if he did have a motive um he didn't have the opportunity and even if he did have the opportunity um it's more likely this other person did it and you know the glove doesn't okay. fit and so on interesting and 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 people do seem to argue this way. Gorgias has another text. There's a third epidaxis that doesn't get as much love as the other two, but the uh, Defense of Palamedes, it's called, has the same structure, and it's um, a mythological legal case. So Palamedes defends himself against the charge of treason by saying, I had no motive to do it. And he goes through all the possible motives and excludes them. 
and I had no opportunity to do it. And he goes through all the different practical uh, steps he would have had to take and shows that he couldn't have taken any of them. So this is a very uh, kind of cunning argument form that obviously is going to work well if you're attracting students who yeah, become yeah, yeah. Uh, legal types. Um, it's like a boom, boom, boom. Yeah, yeah. Sort of and, and showing sort of resourcefulness, right? Extreme resourcefulness mm-hmm. in argument. And the other interesting structural feature in the way Gorgias argues is it's always um, sort of elimination of alternatives. So this is really the most striking thing in the on not being is, uh, you know, if something existed, it would either have to be the existent or the non-existent or both, but it can't be um, the existent for complicated reasons. Uh, It can't be the non-existent because that would be a contradiction. It can't be both because then it would have to be um, these two things he's already refuted. And again, now when you say that it can't be the existent for complicated reasons, is the subtext there that the complicated reasons are these devious sub arguments? Yeah. And, and once again, he sort of enumerates the options and excludes all of them. And this, uh-huh. this I think is really the magic trick that he thinks he's discovered, which is, um, and and it's so you can you can really see people thinking out loud about logic and argument and rational inference in the fifth century and um, trying to uh, trying to get leverage, trying to figure out how can you how can you get something out of nothing? How can you start out not knowing an answer and use rational techniques to get to an answer? And so the proto thought experiment. Yeah, it's 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 logic as a kind of giant thought experiment. The the invention of logic is a giant thought experiment. And Gorgias answer is well, um, if I can divide up the logical space, if I can come up with a range of possibilities, um, and so that, you know, if P then A, B, C, or D, and I can show that not A and not B and not C and not D. And I've proved not P. I didn't. I didn't know not P to start with, but by breaking down um, the range of possibilities into these this determinate number of cases and working through them one by one, I've, I've because he's taking the contrapositive essentially. Yeah, I've I've proved something at the end um, that I didn't know at the beginning, and so that's the structure of interesting. the Helen. Um, if Helen. Okay. Uh, went to Troy, it was because either it was divine fate or um, she was um, carried off by violence or she fell in love or um, it was uh, the art of persuasion by Paris. In any one of those cases, he goes through them one by one. He says, actually, she's not to blame if that was the cause, um, because in each case he can show it's a sort of a stronger power that, that overcame her. Um, and so he takes off the possibilities one by one, and by the end he's proved that Helen was not to blame for going to Troy. So he's proved this incredibly counterintuitive proposition by working through the cases, um, working through the, the logical space. Um, so I think you know part of in in all his texts. I mean, I think he is actually interested in questions about personal moral responsibility in the Helen. He's interested in questions about existence and then on not being. But he's also working on this project of um, sort of thinking aloud about how arguments work and how, what it actually means to prove a new 
proposition where you didn't have knowledge of it at first. So is he aware that he's not enumerating all of the potential consequence in this uh, sort of logical schema he's erected? Or is he making a uh, broader sort of meta critique of using logic to argue and showing that it can be exploited? Yeah, that's a good question. I think it would be a bit early for Metacritic. Like, I think he's inventing the thing. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know, give, give it a generation or two before you get into Metacritic. Um, in the Helen, he does slip into the language of probability at a crucial moment. Um, really? And that may be an acknowledgement that, yeah, maybe I haven't enumerated every single possibility here. Hmm. Um. But he then seems to draw a kind of unconditional conclusion. He also says, I've done this for fun at the end. <laughs> so <laughs> he's, he's, he. Well, that's sends, philosophy then. He I sends think. very uh, kind of clever mixed messages that make it very hard to answer these kinds of questions. To me, that suggests that, yeah, he's, he's aware of the limitations of what he's doing, but he's, um, I, I don't know how to phrase it, except that I've, uh, this is a phrasing I tried out in a, a paper I wrote on the Helen, um, that it's sort of philosophy as challenge. Um, again, these people aren't writing theoretical treatises in which they purport to have everything figured out and they're expressing it in conclusive form. It's, you know, here's an argument. Um, if you don't like it, refute it. Um, and it's, it's using written texts in a way that is a kind of natural progression from the oral competitive mode. So, you know, here's my argument. Um, if you think something's wrong with it, you figure out where, you tell me, you come up with a counter argument. Um, I don't think they ever see themselves as doing anything more than that kind of provisional, um, yeah, challenge, challenge to the opposition. Now, Moving on then to Protagoras, you already mentioned that you're currently working on a book about him. Mm -hmm. And I think one of the arguments you intend to make is that he, maybe inventor isn't the right word, but one of the, certainly one of the contributors, major contributors to what Western philosophy has become. And I'm wondering if this is because of certain arguments, actual arguments he made, um, or whether it's the subjects he was interested in, or, I mean, you already mentioned that he thought it was very important to argue on both sides of the question, to use your words. So I wonder if it might just be uh, a certain methodology he espoused, or maybe it's all three of those things. Yeah, all three, or even even all four. I'll, I'll oh, what's list, the fourth? I'll, I'll, I'll list four things. Um, so on method, I think we have reason to believe that he, to the extent that any one person did this, uh, that he was the inventor of this form of question and answer refutation. Uh, call okay. it dialectic, call it aristic, call it Socratic Alenkus. Um, question and answer refutation which um, gets then enshrined by Plato in his Socratic dialogues and also gets used by later philosophers 
Contemporary philosophers. Contemporary philosophers, sure. Um, Argle and bargle. We we still uh, we still are happy to refute each other through um, mm-hmm. these means, and it's it's even more important than it looks because uh, dialectic, sort of starting from that very basic module, becomes something much grander in, in Plato and the Republic, uh, in the Parmenides, and arguably a lot of more elaborate, constructive-looking philosophical methods also kind of grow out of it. The other methodological innovation would be this idea of arguing on both sides of the question, which I take it is detachable from the dialectical method. Um, Dialectical method, you could do one side of the question, you could do both. Um, Antilogia, or antilogike, arguing on both sides of the question, you could do that through question and answer refutation, or you could do it by making rhetorical speeches. So the two concepts are sort of orthogonal. They get confused, I think, in a lot of um, scholarship, but they're they're orthogonal to each other, and they're both really important. So argument on both sides um, becomes characteristic of the skeptics, the academic skeptics, the Peronian skeptics, but it also, you can see Plato doing it in some dialogues, um, he'll argue both sides of the question. Aristotle thinks it's um, important um, preparation for philosophy. The Stoics do it sometimes, although they have mixed feelings about it. But it too um, really gets into the, the main bloodstream of ancient philosophy. Um, on sort of questions of substance, I think Protagoras' um, main contributions were in uh, ethics and, and political thought. There's a, a tradition that goes back to Plato's Theotetus that sees him as a, a relativist. Um, he was famous for the measure thesis, man is the measure of all things. And in the Theotetus, Plato gives this um, super elaborate interpretation of this as an epistemological theory and actually a metaphysical theory, relativism about truth. I think that's all um, made up. That's something I try to show in the book is that Plato is constructing this position for fun um, the measure thesis or just the way that he interprets the it? way that he interprets it. Yeah. Okay. Uh, the measure thesis. Um, I think everyone assumes that those are Protagoras actual words in his book called truth. And that's fine with me, but it's, um, it's this very kind of ambiguous oracular saying as Socrates indeed says in the Theotetus and the interpretation he goes on to give of it, I think is, is marked as being his own work and not, actually being anything he's getting out of Protagoras' text. Um, If you look at things that are more credibly associated with Protagoras, the Platonic text to look at is the one called Protagoras, um, where he's actually there in person defending these ideas. Um, All sorts of questions about, well, how do we, how should we read Plato's dialogues? How likely, how is this to be close to the original guy? I think, um, I think different dialogues are very different and some dialogues are very much about historical people. And this is one of them. And so I take that very seriously as evidence. And so that's the dialogue where he gives um, uh, the great speech as it's called all about the origins of justice and how um, Zeus has given justice to all human beings. It's not like other skills, which only a few specialists have. Everyone has to have justice and shame and uh, temperance or, community life would be impossible. So there's a there's a very rich political theory there. And um, we have evidence also for ideas of his about moral education, um, about yeah, virtue and justice and 
uh, I think we can, I'm, I'm hoping, put it this way, I'm hoping to reconstruct a pretty rich ethical and political theory, which has um, pretty clear influence on Plato and Aristotle, which they mostly don't acknowledge. Now, I'd like to return to the measure thesis for a moment, just because those words, man is the measure of all things. Yeah. I think that, I mean, I'm sure that I've heard people appropriate that today without any idea of where it comes from. Mm -hmm. uh, and they've used it to mean all sorts of things. But you, you said that this thesis was oracular, that it was ambiguous. Do you have nonetheless a preferred interpretation of what he meant because without any context man is the measure of all things it it could mean nothing or it could mean a hundred different things yeah. so without having read the text truth uh, it's it is quite oracular yeah exactly and one puzzle is what kind of text was this this work called truth um i follow a number of scholars in thinking it's probably actually the same book as, or part of the book that also gets reported to us as um, opposed arguments. So it would have been a kind of um, introductory, um, kind of programmatic saying, because Plato tells us it's at the start of the book, kind of a programmatic saying, which would then be kind of supported and explicated by all these opposed arguments on different questions. You can sort of imagine how that would go. You'd get um, arguments, um, you know, for and against, uh, I don't know, justice or democracy or the unity of being or something. And they would tend to support um, skeptical conclusion, a perspectival conclusion, maybe. Um, perspectival is a, a key word. Yeah, I think it, it's hard not to think there's something perspectival about it, right? And that's yeah. what Socrates runs with in Theotetus, where he turns it into this very extreme form of subjectivism, relativism, etc. Um, yeah. One big question is, should we hear it as being about individual human beings? Because man is, is anthropos, it's gender neutral, uh -huh. it's every human being. But um, is it a reference sort of to the human species as a whole or to each one of us individually? And that gives you quite different philosophical thoughts, depending on which you take. And um, quite generally, are the different perspectives that Protagoras was interested in, are they the different perspectives of different societies and cultures? Um, because the fifth century Greeks were actually kind of obsessed by, by cultural diversity, um, lots of people floating vaguely relativistic ideas already. Um, is that going to be the main point, or is it going to be more uh, the wind feels cold to you but warm to me, which is the path of interpretation Plato takes? And I'm, I'm kind of inclined to say, well, it was it was all these things, because, again, I think we... Um, we tend to read these early texts kind of anachronistically. We read them as if they were Aristotle. But in the fifth century, there's no rule that your text has to only mean one thing. And the great analog, I think, for the measure thesis would be um, the opening uh, line of Heraclitus' book about uh, the Logos, where scholars you know, wonder, well, is this Logos? Is it a cosmic principle? Is it the book itself that he's talking about? 
And again, the answer should be sort of all of them. You hear it one way, you read further, then you realize there's this other sense. Um, so I think you're, when I, I do give an, an interpretation of the measure thesis in the book, but it's, um, it's, I think, I think I come up with five different interpretations, all of which I think are correct. And I've got a, I've got a, a flow chart of the order, hear them <laughs> in. I think that that's, you know, that's just sort of for fun. I'm not, um, super confident of it, but I am confident that's the right way to read it is, um, yeah. you don't, you don't try to select the one perfect reading. It's deliberately ambiguous and you're supposed to think about it over and over and keep coming up with new ideas. Yeah. This is totally anachronistic, but when I hear the word, you use the word perspectival. And when I read the phrase, it, it has something of like a, an idealistic flavor to it. Uh, like things are true uh, in virtue of our perception or they exist in virtue of our perception. Everything is related uh, to people. But I, I know that that's... Yeah, I don't know if I would go that far because mm -hmm. um, there are other ways of hearing it and other things he said that sound more empiricist, skeptical. So he had a famous... Um, this is one of our few other sort of fragments uh, about the gods, where he says, um, about the gods, I know nothing, neither whether they exist or do not, um, nor what they are like in form, because um, many, uh, many are the obstacles, the matter is unclear, and human life is too short. That's, that's a very garbled um, version of it. But um, it does, it is well attested that he said something along those lines. Um, so he's an agnostic in religion, and it sounds as though that's based on an empiricism that leads him to a kind of skepticism about things that aren't perceptible like that. Whereas if you're, if you're a fully, um, you know, if you're, if you're really going to go all the way down the perspectival route, why not just say, well, I'm, you know, um, uh, I'm going to believe in Zeus and so on because that's where I'm coming from. Yeah. This, uh, the, this is all quite interesting what you just said about his agnosticism because earlier when we briefly touched on his theory of justice, it seemed like he very much relied upon Zeus in that theory. And it, that, that makes me think of the, the devious reasoning of the sophists and perhaps what might be uh, uncharitably construed as their willingness to draw on whatever they could to, uh, to argue for their conclusion, even if it was something that maybe they didn't actually believe in. Yeah, I think um, deviousness might be going a bit far, but how about literary resourcefulness? <laughs> yeah, sure, uh, sure. I think, I mean, first of all, it's Plato who's presenting it, and I think it's possible that it's Plato who puts these ideas in mythic form for his own amusement. Um, but even as Plato presents it, even if we can attribute... Uh, the myth itself to Protagoras, I think um, the fifth century is already very sophisticated about religion and there's already people doing allegorical and naturalizing interpretations of religious texts. And I think if you were known as an, uh, as an agnostic and you come up with a myth in which Zeus plays a role, um, nobody's going to think you're trying to fool anyone. They're just going to think, oh, uh, I'm supposed to read this metaphorically. And so you do that. 
and the, the interesting question is, well, what is the metaphorical content of the myth? And I think it's a way of talking about human nature. I think if you say um, human beings have received justice and shame from Zeus, that um, translates pretty straightforwardly into these things are parts of human nature. Um, and then there's a lot more to be said about what that implies. Now, this you so you you mentioned the you mentioned uh, Protagoras's agnosticism, mm -hmm. and this is something that I've I've talked a bit about with Katya Vogt at Columbia, who I totally adore, and she told me that religion. I mean, we were talking more about. Uh, the Stoic time period, but that mm -hmm. religion for th those Greeks, at least, was, um, and now I'm using my words, almost like uh, modern day, sort of less religious uh, Christianity, where we still celebrate Christmas, we um, buy presents, we do, we go to church sometimes. It's it's less like we're committed to the ontological uh, aspects of Christianity and more just committed to the traditions that are part of our culture. Is that at all how you see religion as functioning for the Sophists or Greeks of that time period that they don't really believe their gods up on these mountains, but they're still performing sacrifices, visiting temples, these sorts of things, just because it's very much part of their culture? I'm not sure I'd put it quite that way. I mean, it's it's very complicated. And in the fifth century, I mean, there are um, impiety trials, right? I mean, Socrates and possibly quite a few other intellectuals get into trouble for not being conservative enough uh, in their religion, which maybe suggests that there are a lot of diehard genuine conservatives out there. Maybe not. I, I have to say I have this suspicion in the contemporary US case that um, some of the uh, extremely vehement um, uh, right-wing Christian political types are uh, actually secret atheists, and that's why they're so angry at secular liberals, is they think that um, these people have ruined religion for them. And, um, you know, if, if they were actually Christians, they wouldn't be so angry all the time. But so it's possible there's a fifth century parallel to that. And um, the people who were persecuting the intellectuals also weren't um, all necessarily true believers themselves. But that's, that's a somewhat uh, complicated hypothesis. It's simpler to believe that um, a lot of ordinary Greek people absolutely believed all the old stories. And certainly if you look at um, popular religious practices and things like, um, you know, the magic spells that people would try to put on each other, uh, it looks like there's a lot of pretty crude traditional belief still alive there and, and alive for centuries after. I think the interesting question is what, um, what the intellectuals believed and how they believed it. And something that's interesting there is that um, the philosophers, and this I think is true for the whole 
Greek philosophical tradition, they tend not to distinguish monotheism and polytheism. Um, Socrates huh. will talk about the god, and sometimes it seems like he's talking about Apollo, but sometimes it seems as though he's maybe just slipping into monotheism. And this the is, Stoics would do that too. Yeah, the Stoics do that too, and they actually sort of have um, theories, and some of these theories get going in the 5th century of sort of how you reduce the many gods to one god, and are they how are they related to each other? Are they different uh, aspects of the same thing? So if it, I don't know enough to say this with confidence, but it kind of reminds me of Hinduism. Um, if you, you know, talk to a sophisticated Hindu friend, um, you'll get that same uh, stance, I think, that behind the many gods, there is a single divine power. And you can think of it either, either way, um, polytheism or monotheism. And of course, if you if you've got sort of explicitly polytheistic texts and rituals, but you think really it boils down to the same thing as monotheism, that already sets you on the path of interpreting a lot of your religion in kind of metaphorical ways um, that maybe to an outsider would look like, oh, this person doesn't really believe in their traditions; they're just kind of playing along, in enjoying the cultural ritual, but. Uh, I would resist the inference that, oh, that's not real religion anymore. I think that is, you know, a lot of these philosophers in the Platonic tradition, especially, are actually extremely pious. It's a, it's a very serious kind of religion. It's just a tricky one to um, analyze and articulate. So what were some of the other influential aspects substance-wise rather than uh, form-wise of Protagoras? Uh, I mean, aside from the theory of justice. Right. Well, one of the few areas on which we have um, views attributed to him by um, sort of later collections of fragments, so um, these are supposed to be things said by Protagoras himself, uh, a couple of them have to do with education. And he says um, these things that sound a bit banal about how to learn something requires um, you have to start early and there has to be natural ability and uh, training or effort and teaching. So those three factors are necessary to learn anything significant. Um, so that doesn't sound too exciting, but if you put it together with the picture you get in Plato's Protagoras of Protagoras as an educator, um, I think one can spell out a picture of moral education that becomes quite interesting. So the picture of moral education would be um, you have to have um, a nature which uh, makes you able to learn uh, the virtues and according to the great speech in the Protagoras, everyone has that, but they have it to different degrees. Um, it's not part of the view that we're all equally endowed with the capacity for virtue. So you might think, um, okay, some, some people are better bets than others when it comes to moral education. And then there has to be um, training or practice. And that seems to be the kind of moral education that Protagoras describes in the second part of the great speech where he says, look, everyone teaches virtue to everyone else. Everyone teaches justice to everyone else. Parents teach it to their children. Um, 
a whole society through its its culture and its education system is mainly concerned with giving a moral education to the next generation. And then if you ask yourself sort of what's what's missing from this picture that we get in the speech, well, what's missing is any kind of um, rational instruction. But of course, that's what Protagoras himself is offering. So I think we have to read the speech as kind of a a uh, very indirect sort of advertisement um, yeah, yeah. In, intended to get us asking what's what's missing. Oh, what's missing is what Protagoras could add here. So this tripartite uh, theory of education, I think, is developed specifically for moral education into the virtues. And what I find interesting is um, I think it, it's basically taken over by Plato and Aristotle pretty much um, as their own guiding framework. So think of uh, Plato's Republic. Who are the guardians going to be? Uh, they're going to be people who have philosophical natures, so outstanding natural endowment, and they're going to receive a poetic education in their early years, which will give them the right values. And then they're going to be educated in dialectic as philosophers. They're going to get a very extensive, rational, formal education as the third ingredient. And that will make them... Uh, people who have uh, the art of politics, the politicae techne, people qualified to rule the city, which is exactly what Protagoras is promising to make you. So it's it's the three-part Protagorean model. And in Aristotle's um, Nicomachean and Ethics, it's this weird feature of the book that um, in uh, book two, he talks as if um, virtue came purely from habituation. So that would be Protagorean ascasis. Um, but by the time you get to the end of book six, you realize that, oh, actually, um, it requires phronesis, which is a um, much more rational uh, business. And presumably, this is where reading books like The Ethics itself comes in. So again, it looks like there's, um, and not everyone's going to be able to do that, it looks like there's a three-factor model underlying Aristotle's Ethics too, and it's the same trifecta nature effort and practice in the early years, and then um, some more advanced rational instruction later on. And that's how you acquire ethical virtue, and in particular, the kind of ethical virtue that also makes you um, uh, politically um, qualified to rule your city. Hmm. You know, it's it's funny. I've, I've Virtue is so important across ancient philosophy, and I've never... I've never thought to ask, though, just who came up with virtue? Uh, I mean, and if, if the sophists were already talking about virtue in the 5th century and their proto-philosophy, then where did they get this notion of virtue from? Because it's not, yeah. it's not just obvious. Well, the, the short answer is Homer and Hesiod. Um, and 5th century ideas, I think, are an amalgam of the two of them, and of course, a lot of other stuff intervening. But I think if you if you read the Iliad and the Odyssey and uh, Hesiod's works and days, nothing that happens in the fifth century is going to be a huge surprise. Um, so these are uh, the great poets of ancient Greece a couple of centuries earlier, and yeah. from Homer, what you get is uh, well, you get the the language of of arete and being best. Um, this idea of excellence and the idea that it involves um, elite competition, basically it's something displayed in elite competition. 
Did you say that was Hesiod? No, that's that's Homer. That's Hesiod. That's Homer. Okay, because I think of that as being very much part of the Odyssey. Yeah, part of the Odyssey and part of the Iliad, even sort of more starkly, um, because mm-hmm. there you've um, you've got all the Greek heroes competing against each other to be best best in word and deed, um, and what's not so prominent there, but maybe more in the Odyssey is um, the virtue of justice, which, you know, of of all the Greek virtues is probably the one that's closest to capturing more modern ethical conceptions and arguably the virtue that they themselves um, worry about the most, um, theorize the most. And that, that really is a theme of the Odyssey um, because Odysseus has to go back and, you know, kick the bad guys um, out of his uh, position. Um, Ithaca is being uh, destroyed by injustice is, is the basic premise. Um, and Hesiod, but Hesiod actually is the one who sort of articulates more fully um, the centrality of justice and kind of gives you a laundry list of what actions are just and what actions are unjust and says uh, that justice and law are gifts of Zeus to human beings. They're what separate us from the animals. So this is where you start to get this idea that's also in Protagoras of uh, justice as being part of our natural human endowment and having a kind of normative authority that comes from being part of human nature. Mm-hmm. Now, I, I have a, a methodological curiosity now. Mm-hmm. So... Uh, Homer, I think, is what eight eighth century BC seventh, mm-hmm. and then you're so. I know that classicists at least have a reputation for being much more interested in things like orthography and uh, spelling, pronunciation, maybe forms than philosophers. Uh, maybe you can, maybe this is a general rule, but there are exceptions or maybe I'm just totally off, but does it add a, another dimension of difficulty having to engage in this archeological aspect of your philosophy when on any given day you might be reading and interpreting language or linguistic objects that were produced, uh, five, six hundred years apart, because in English, uh, if you were to read like a 14th or 15th century manuscript that hadn't been sort of retyped or reprinted in at least a modern spelling, where you might see the word was spelled five different ways on a page, Mm -hmm. uh, it would be tremendously uh, difficult, and that would be a full-time task in and of itself. Yeah, I mean, um, that's not really the problem because we've got um, lovely, clean, shiny modern editions of all these texts now, and it's not as if I'm um, reading, you know, ancient uh, manuscripts of uh, Homer trying to piece it all together for myself. Um, okay. Everything's been sort of made accessible and standardized, and uh, we even have very good translations of most of the central ancient texts now. Um, I, I, don't know. Right. I, I guess I just assumed that when we were talking about the, some of the sophists where the texts are less accessible, yeah. or if you have to find so, new ones, things that aren't yeah. really translated. Yeah. You have, 
Yeah, so with, with some of these sophistic texts, um, it's it's an exciting time to be working on them. I'm I'm teaching a seminar on them right now, and the great majority of the scholarly work that I'm putting um, in the modules online for the students to use is either published in the last five years or unpublished, um, because new editions and um, discussions and translations are coming out all the time. Um, it's it's boom time for the sophists. And um, so that's kind of fun. So it, it's true that five years ago, actually, the um, situation as regards translations in particular of these texts was not great. And there's still a lot of um, work to be done figuring them out. But superficially, um, access is, is good now, I would say. Um, what's tricky is um, sort of the deeper point you're, you're pointing to, which is, um, you know, we just have these uh, tiny scraps relative to what the original corpus would have looked like. Um, and what's more, when we try to draw connections, it's easy to think that it's easier to do than it is because uh, we kind of forget that these right. are, uh, yeah, just kind of bits of uh, bits of flotsam and jetsam on the ocean, right? right? So you out Homer, Homer is centuries earlier, um, all sorts of poets in between, and yeah. we have some of them to be thorough, actually, in talking about Greek ethics. Um, one would have to talk quite a bit, I think, about Theognis and a few other poets that come in between. Um, and it's, it's very tempting to just... Uh, not do that thoroughly enough and just sort of hop from one high point right. to another. And it's not just that there's a gap in the poetic tradition, but when we're reading Shakespeare or um, Arthurian lores, things like that, we have tons of economic information, historical information, um, other culture and cultural information to help provide a scaffolding for mm -hmm. interpreting the text. And I can only imagine that there is much more scant information about what's going on as we go increasingly further back in time. I, I don't know about that. We know, we know more about fifth century Athens than we do about King Arthur's time. That's for sure. Um, oh, really? Yeah, sure. Okay. Uh, well, King Arthur is, yeah, yeah okay. since, we don't, yeah, since seven, we don't know whether he we don't even know if he was a real yeah. person um but no I, but but i'm saying but the 1500s when those texts were written. okay yeah if you want to if you want to go back to i mean the real if you want to play devil's advocate here i think the way to go is to say look we don't even know if there was a homer and we don't know what centuries uh those poems were written over and what's more thanks for playing devil's advocate. <laughs> yeah because i i see i see where you're headed here um and why assume that there's even a consistent viewpoint in any of them? And what's more, actually, the really uh, the real way to um, twist the knife would be to point out that uh, the way the fifth century itself read Homer was pretty weird. So people are already oh, doing yeah. weird allegorical interpretations, some of them, where these gods are all just representing natural forces. Um, really? Other people are going around. Uh, Plato has a dialogue called the Ion where Socrates interrogates a rhapsode, and a rhapsode is someone who makes a living going around reciting Homer and then explaining how fabulous Homer is. And this guy Ion is convinced that Homer is kind of 
an expert in all the arts. Um, and he, cause he'll have some passage of Homer to quote on any topic you might name. And that makes him ion an expert on all these things because he, he's the person who declaims Homer the best and can find you any passage. Um, and there's a text called the, the contest of Homer and Hesiod, which is all about, um, sort of these rival poets claim to wisdom and they're, they're doing this competition against each other, which is very much like a later sophistic competition. So there's, um, there's all kinds of weird ways to use Homer, uh, that we can spot in the fifth century. And when I say, oh, well, he's the great moral teacher and they take their ideas of arete from them, that's incredibly oversimplified. Um, that, that would make a fifth century person wince for sure. Mm. Um, because it's way more complicated than that. Okay. Well now moving toward finishing up, I think, and I don't think I'm alone here that ancient philosophy much more so than contemporary anal analytic philosophy is much more geared toward teaching us how to live. And I mean, we already touched on that with the sort of the three-part model of moral education. Now, as somebody who studies this for a living, and it's not just a living, I mean, I think it's really an integral part of your life. Are there any particular ways in which reading and researching and writing about this philosophy have impacted how you live your daily life? Ooh, that's a tough one. There are definitely bits of ancient philosophy that are meant to be kind of directly practically helpful. Like there are these traditions of um, consolation and so on that you get with the Stoics and um, a long tradition also of philosophizing that's designed to get you not to fear death anymore. So Socrates in the Phaedo and Cicero in the Tusculan Disputations and Epicurean theory. And I, I've actually taught uh, an undergrad seminar on, well, several different ones on, on death, trying to see if I could get any of these texts to work for me um, and work for the students. And sometimes students will say that, yeah, they seem to work, but I, I have to say, I don't have that experience. I don't think I'm any less afraid of death than I would be if I'd spent my life as an engineer. Um, none, none of these strategies, um, have, have been psychologically efficacious. There is, um, there is something about the way that Plato in particular views the world that I'm, I'm sure has affected me over the years and that I'm uh, glad to have had, but it's very hard to articulate what it is. Um, yeah, why, why don't you ask me another question? And I'll, I'll let this one um, let, let this Percolate. one ferment for a minute and come back to it. <laughs> yeah, sure, sure. Well, my other question is also, I guess, a lot less serious. But we've talked a fair bit about etymology, rhetoricos, uh, epideixis, uh, so. Sophos. Now I'm curious, and, and you just mentioned rhapsode, which is another word I didn't know and right. is a fun one, but are there any English words whose etymology you find particularly fun given your 
expertise in ancient Greek? And I mean, maybe you have Latin as well for yeah. Latin. Yeah. Um, uh, I talked to uh, Chris Babanich had a, a good story about anaphylaxis, which is a nice word. Uh-huh. My favorite is um, dulosis with regard to ant slavery. <laughs> well, the one that always makes me laugh is that, you know, you get um, malaria from a kind of mosquito called the anophilase, which just means um, not beneficial. <laughs> so <laughs> not yeah. beneficial mosquito is the one that will give you malaria. Um, but it's not very philosophical. Um, some of the, I mean, some of the contortions that Greek terms go through are pretty fascinating, like dialectic, right? Um, if you were to track the history of that from Plato and Aristotle um, through, I don't know, Hegel and the Frankfurt School, uh, that would be a pretty dizzying philosophical story. And um, I guess in, in some cases like that, I, I like to kind of um, fight in a quiet way for the um, the more original Greek sense of the term, which is a very useful term. Uh, actually, uh, words to do with the sophists are quite interesting because you've got sophistry, sophist, sophism, all bad things, and yet sophisticated somehow became a good thing, oh. right? Yeah. Uh, and I think oh, that's actually fairly recent that a few centuries ago, like uh, food or medicine was sophisticated if it had um, some kind of fraudulent ingredient in it. But at a certain point, the value oh, of wow. it got flipped. Um, and I'd like to know more about the history of that. No, that that is a good one. <laughs> Thanks. Okay. Well, Rachel, this has been absolutely Terrific. I learned a ton. And I one day would love to do another one, maybe on one of your other interests, like uh, the Republic or anything else. That would be fabulous. Thanks. Hold on, Geeslings. Before you go, please uh, like, subscribe, follow if you haven't already. Smash all those buttons. And also, if you haven't followed me on uh, Twitter at Robinson Earhart, or if you're not joining me every morning as i eat my pint of ice cream on twitch at robinson Earhart on robinson eats please do so